Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Now today, we're not going to focus on a single topic, but we're going to do a series of topics. And this is on questions that I hear most often from listeners. We're going to talk first about an unusual topic, firing, getting fired, recovering, or on the flip side of it, needing to fire someone. And then we're going to shift focus and talk about cross-cultural teams. And we'll talk a little bit about the impact of emerging markets. And along the way, there's a whole host of topics that I think you're going to find interesting with tons of advice. My guest today is Nirmalya Kumar, who is the Lee Kong Cheng Professor of Marketing at Singapore Management University and a distinguished fellow at INSEAD. He's previously taught at Columbia University, at Harvard Business School, at IMD in Switzerland, and at London Business School. And between 2013 and 2016, he headed strategy for the $100 billion Tata Group. Now, that's quite an interesting background, being in Tata and then in academics as well. Now, as if that's not enough, Nirmalia has written several articles in leading academic journals, including nine articles in Harvard Business Review, and he's the author of nine books. He's been included on the Thinkers 50 list, which is the biannual listing of the world's top 50 management thinkers. He's been the 50 best business school professors, and he's been in the 50 most influential business school professors in the world. I think that's a pretty good standing. The book today, though, that has me fascinated is called Thinking Smart, How to Master Work, Life, and Everything in Between. Nirmalia, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on the show today. I look forward to discussing with your listeners my various ideas. <laughs> I look forward to hearing the ideas, and I'm going to tell you they go across a whole range of topics, which is fabulous. Now, I have to start at the beginning. So you started, you were an academic at some very prestigious places, doing quite well by all standards, publishing lots of books, and you took a job at Tata Group a quite large, I guess the best way to describe it is conglomerate. And it looks like it was going really pretty well from everything I can see. So first off, why did you join Tata? Yeah, so that's a very interesting question, Wanda, because basically when I started, I was in my office one afternoon and the phone suddenly rang at London Business School. Uh, and so I pick up the phone and there's a headhunter on the other line offering me his job to be the head of strategy for a $100 billion group. And I told him off the hand that, listen, this is not going to work for me. But he persisted, and after some time I met him, and then slowly I got talked into this job of doing, of being the head of the Tata Group strategy, which is at the group level. Uh, for this $100 billion company, the 675,000 employees, and more than, you know, we own companies like, we used to own, when I was at the Tata Group, we own companies like Jaguar, Tetley uh, they run the Starbucks and Zara in India. So it's an incredibly diversified conglomerate. And to be head of strategy of such a group was an incredible opportunity, which at some level I just could not turn down. I can imagine. I follow the Tata Group for the last number of years. And if you don't know them, I recommend that you go Google them. It's quite impressive what they've done and you know where they've grown and how big they have become. Okay, so you leave academics, you're head of strategy for Tata. Did you enjoy it? Did you have fun there? 
it was one of the greatest experiences of my life, just like being a professor at all these different schools. Well, because, you know, you are there at the heart of what is going to be the thinking part of the group, where they are going to decide what are the decisions we need to make today so that in the next 20 years, this group will continue to flourish the way it has for the last 140 years. So it's, an, it's a wonderful opportunity for an academic to have a ringside seat into seeing how business works today. And business works today at a global level because 70% of Tata's uh, revenues came from outside India. All right, right. It's amazing. It's an amazing story. All right. So now you were there until 2016, and you were fired. What happened? So it's very interesting. You know, in a sense, what happened was the job is going very well. I've been there for three years, three months, and my last review, which was three months before I got fired, was excellent. The thing that happened was, in a sense, I was not fired, but I was collateral damage because the chairman got fired. And when the chairman got fired, of course, the person who is closest to him gets fired too. You know? yes. Now, the way I learned about it was most interesting. So I was at a panel of employees answering their questions. And it was about, let's say, 3.34 in the afternoon. And suddenly, while I'm on the panel on the stage, a guy comes up and whispers in my ear, the chairman has just been fired, and I think you've been fired too. <laughs> so I look at him and I turn back to the panel because I'm a professional. I turn back to the panel and continue answering questions for another for 30 minutes. Then when the panel ends, I walk out, say to answer, what the hell are you talking about? And he tells me, listen, the chairman has just been fired. He's been asked to step down. And from what we hear, you have also been fired. I said, okay. And I decided at that time, it's about 5.30 in the evening, that rather than going back to the office of this uncertainty, I go home. So I go home and I turn on the television. And the first channel I turned on to says, Cyrus Mystery, who was my boss, the chairman, has been fired. And the ticket at the bottom has my name saying I've been fired too. <laughs> and every channel I turned to has the same story. So I'm going, going through across 10 Indian channels and they all have the same story and the same ticker that I've been fired. But nobody's told me as yet. It wasn't until <laughs> 9 o'clock that I got a call from the, somebody from the company saying that, listen, it's my unpleasant duty to inform you that you've been fired. <laughs> like like I didn't know it already. Okay, I know lots of people who've been fired in ways that they would say are less than ideal. And we'd certainly hope, they wouldn't wish that anybody hear it on the news for several hours before they actually get a call. But the truth is it happens. And it happens even at the senior levels for a whole host of reasons. So, you know, what happened then? Did you have your friends and family calling you saying, what did you do? You must have screwed up badly. Yeah, so it's interesting. You know, I would say that one of the best ways, now, it's one thing things should be said. I think what you said, Wanda, is very clear, clear that people get fired all the time. So it's not a big deal in that some sense, right? Because this is not this kind of part for the course of companies are restructuring and re-energizing themselves. So I understand that, you know. The thing is how every individual copes will be different. In my case, I had some very good fortune, which, you know, I don't want to, in this conversation, come across as I'm prescribing things for others who may not be in the same situation as I was. To, to, to be truthful, I'd already worked for 30 years in my life, so I already had, of course, a, a large amount of savings, and I had a financial security, which other people who are fired may not have. Right? So I want to be very careful in letting your listeners know that what I'm saying is applicable to me, but it may not be applicable to everybody who may be in more dire circumstances. So in a sense, what I did after that was I first decided that this firing is such a public thing and the press was very hungry. So I had the press on my phone ringing nonstop. 
asking what happened because everybody wants to know when suddenly the head of a $100 billion company is fired, people want to know what happened. And so the press was calling me nonstop. I had to press outside my door. So what I decided was I would take control of the narrative. And I wrote a blog, which was called I Just Got Fired, because I have a blog, so I wrote a blog called I Just Got Fired. And the thing is that that blog, the moment I published it on my blog, was picked up by 100 different news outlets in India, and was printed next day on the, on the front page of six major newspapers in India. So what that did was it may it thrust me into the next phase of my life in some sense. You know, so rather than, you know, having time to stew over why I got fired, what happened, answering phone calls about that thing, you know, and uh, beating myself up, what I did was I went into the battle head first and I decided that I was going to take control of the narrative and tell people how unfair this firing of the chairman was. I didn't talk about myself. I talked about how unfair it was for the chairman. So I trust myself into this battle, and I trust myself in the battle on behalf of somebody else. So it became almost therapeutic. Okay. And I was in the press every single day for the next three months. Okay. <laughs> um, because this was many the biggest us, story in India for that. Yeah, many of us who write blogs would wish that we could suddenly have six newspapers pick it up the next morning. I don't think that's going to be so lucky. Um, and I can imagine for you that that has both pros and cons, writing a blog about I just got fired. But I get your point that you have to take control of the narrative. Otherwise, you're just going to be stuck with the press calling every five minutes wanting something more, 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 more. Okay? Yeah, so, and you know, the interesting thing is, as has been said before, you know, one must not take that situation and consider it personal, permanent, or pervasive. So that's what I tried to do. I said, this is not personal to me. I'm collateral damage in a battle. Secondly, it's not permanent. I know I'm fired today, but I won't be fired forever. I'll get a job sooner or later. And secondly, it's not pervasive. It doesn't say anything about me as a human being. It's just that in this job, this is the situation. This is why I got fired. Yeah. Okay, so that's easy to say that it's not personal, it's not permanent, and it's not about me as a human being. And all true, all true for most people who get fired most of the time, unless they're incompetent at the job that they were doing. It's still also not personal. But it's easy to say that. It's hard to do it in the moment. So do you have any advice on coping in the moment for the average person? Yeah, go ahead. So the one thing is, you know, again, I'm blessed. I'm blessed with an optimistic disposition. You know, like, so I can't be down for long. So, you know, very quickly I get back up. So that is just a part. In fact, you know, uh, I'm divorced and my daughter was with my with her mother. And then my daughter was only 15 years old. And her mother informed her that, you know, your dad had gotten fired. She said, yeah, I read the blog. And then, <laughs> my mother, then, my, then her mother asked her, what do you think about this? She rolled her eyes and said, looked at her mother and said, you know, there's always some drama with your dad. His dad will be fine. You see, so in some sense, it was this, you know, the, the thing that you go then is you go to yourself and you go to your friends and family. So to myself, when I went, I had an optimistic disposition. I said, Dad, is fine. I took control of the narrative. I said, but the other thing I have to say, my friends and family were incredible. I mean, they really reached out to me. They said, is there anything we can do? This I got 500 emails telling me from my ex-students, from ex-colleagues, and from my friends and family, I couldn't cope with it at that time. 
you know, it was more than five hundred. I think in the end there were like about four thousand after the blog there were like four or five thousand emails. I just concocted it, uh, telling me these hang in there, you'll be fine, you're brilliant, blah blah blah. So, you know, that helped me a lot. But my friends yeah. family, because as I always tell people, I live in the affection of my friends and they really were incredible. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. I, opt, optimistic disposition certainly does help here. So now, Namalia, do you recommend that someone be as public as you were? I mean, you had a reason for writing a blog and taking control of the narrative and putting it out because it was such a big story when the chairman was fired and you were just part of the package. But do you recommend other people are that public, writing a blog, no, writing no, an email? I would no, no, I would not. I would not. I, and that's why I said everything I say is personal to me. Every person has to look at their situation and decide what's best. So being optimistic always helps. Having your friends and family always helps. But going public may, will probably not help. You see, in my case, it was very specific. Number one, I knew the moment I was fired that I'm going to go back into academics. In academics, they don't care what you did. In fact, the more you write, the better it is. <laughs> Secondly, I knew I was not going to look for a job in corporate India. If I was right. looking for a job in corporate India, I was going to be a pariah. There was no way I was going to get one. But since I was looking for a job with a university and that outside India, this was a non-issue for me going public, whereas my right. other colleagues could not go public. Right. Right, I can appreciate the that. The other thing I would say is that, you know, yeah. 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 There yeah. is so something... a special situation. There is something to be said, though, maybe not being as public as you were in terms of a blog, but that ability to admit that, yes, I got fired and to say that to friends and family and that's just how it is and be okay with it, not feel like it's going to tumble you or destroy you. Yep, I got fired. Okay, next. Um, I think is a really helpful thing because it allows people to reach out to you in a very human way, the friends and family that you need at exactly that moment in time. I think you have to find your own way to do it, though. And the thing is, you know, what we are trying to say over here is that one needs to make the correct attribution for the event. So I made the attribution for the event that it's not my fault I got fired. I have my last evaluation. It's not the chairman's fault he got fired. We got fired because at this stage, the person who controlled the situation uh, was suffering from hubris. You know, they didn't want to let go. So, you know, it wasn't my fault. The, the, chairman, the, the chairman previous to my chairman was the one who had the controlling votes. And basically, he felt we were doing some of the things that he had done. And that's why he fired Cyrus Mystery. And so, you know, it's also important to make the right attributions while also taking the learnings. What could I have done yeah. better? So, you know, when you get okay. fired, you need to understand, is it my fault? And if it's not my fault, even you still need to take away some lessons from that. So I basically converted that whole situation into a situation of learning for me, not only for myself. I used it as a way to teach others. So I went immediately after a month or two months, after the press battle of two months, I went to some of the top schools in the world, in SIAD, Indian School of Business, and I basically made presentations on a topic which I call living, the, living a boardroom battle. So I made okay. my story. I told people, I used to always teach cases in business school. Now I have become a case. So let me teach you this case about living a boardroom battle. And in that battle, I was trying to teach people not about myself, but I was trying to teach people what is the role of a promoter, what is the role of the board of directors, and what is the role of executives. And the need for people to understand the distinction 
for good corporate governance with the distinction between the three roles of promoter, executives, and the board of directors. So it became a very interesting case study. So, you know, it was not only that I learned for myself, but I also tried to learn for others. And being a professor, that was natural to me. Yeah. All right. I can't resist on that one, Kamalia. If you were giving people sort of a couple of lines of advice on how to deal with the boardroom and the challenges and battles and conflicts that exist there, what are the couple things you think people should be paying attention to? So the only people who need to deal with the boardroom are the, exe- are the senior executives, generally the CEO and the CFO. And the thing is, you need to understand this boardroom in terms of who are the people. You need to understand the dynamics between them. You need to understand who has the power in the boardroom because all board members don't have equal power. Some people are, you know, representing larger chunks of shares holders than others do. And you mm-hmm. also need to have a finger, which we were probably very poor at, have a finger on what they are thinking and what is their point of view. And what we were very poor at was not knowing what was a major shareholder thinking at that time and what was his point of view. Because he was represented on the board with two of his uh, two board members, but those board members, I don't think themselves knew that well what the uh, you know, ex-chairman was thinking who controlled the shares. So okay. knowing what's happening on the board, knowing the dynamics between the board members, and knowing and having some third informal channels to understand what's happening in the board is very important. We didn't have that third channel, you know, which is an informal yeah. channel which goes through somebody else to know what's happening behind the board. Right. That's wise advice dealing with any executive team anywhere that is making decisions where you're not a member necessarily of the team, but you need to know how to influence that team. And I could go through your list and say, you know, who are the people? What's the dynamics among the people? Who has the power in the room? Why do they have the power? And have an informal channel to understand what's really on people's minds and a finger on the pulse of what they're really thinking at any given point in time sound advice okay let me flip the tables now you also give people advice about how to fire someone so what's your advice on the best way to go about firing so the first thing to remember is Wanda that you know firing people is not easy most people who have to fire people I have to say in my career I've noticed they don't enjoy the task right it's something they have to do and what I try to tell people is we are going to have to fire people, and when we fire people, can we do it in a human way? Which means, first, before somebody is fired, they should not come to them as a surprise. They should have been informed sometime before that they were not meeting the bar. And in telling them that they're not meeting the bar, it's very important to use data and use behavioral evidence rather than saying attitudinal things. So it's very important to inform the person that, listen, you're not performing first, so that it gives them a time, and then give them some time to improve and support them in that improvement. And then, if after a reasonable period of time they don't show the improvement with clear indicators if possible, then it, of course, you have no choice but to fire them. Now, when you fire somebody, that's also a very difficult conversation because you have to call the person in the room and tell him or her that you've been fired. In doing that, I always say in that conversation, you need to make sure of three things. First thing is, you need to ensure that the person who's been fired knows they have been fired. Why do I say that, Wanda? I say that because, you know, whenever you tell somebody they're firing them, they're going to counter-argue. When they counter-argue, you might 
you know, suddenly show that there is some wiggle room because they'll have some good arguments too. And you might suddenly start indicating there's some wiggle room and the person may walk out of the room thinking they've not been fired because you agreed with some of those points. So I always tell people that in that conversation when you find somebody is very important that when the person walks out of the door, they do know they have been fired, you know, and that there is no wiggle room in this situation. Second thing in that conversation, every person who you fire uh, generally, especially when you're talking managerial level, they have somebody else in the organization who's more senior than them, who's their sponsor. You have to let them know in that conversation, I have discussed this conversation I'm having with you, with your sponsor, they are aware of this conversation. So because the first thing that person is going to do after they leave the room is call their sponsor and tell them, do you, do you know I've been fired? So you want to already manage that. The third thing is you want to do in that conversation is you want to tell that employee that, listen, I'm, you're sorry that you have been fired. We understand that this is traumatic, and the HR department is available to you to help you in your transition. Okay. Now, I know that this is not something that we always do, but I always believe that especially at managerial levels, we have to follow this because, you know, uh, the people who need you are also part of your brand. They are also going to affect your reputation. And though they may not see it as fair, because of course being fired is not an easy thing, at least you can, in the circumstances, give them the feeling that the process was fair. Yeah, one of the things that I find people want to do is they try to take care of, they want the person who's being fired to feel good. And, you know, they're not going to feel good about you in that moment in time because you're firing them. So it's not about feeling good. It's about their being able to say you were fair. And that's exactly. a hard balance, exactly. I because find, for a lot of people to draw. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. Because they're not going to like you after you're fired. You, know, you just have to accept that. But you hope that on reflection, not immediately, because there's a heat of the moment reaction, but on reflection they will say, yeah, the guys or the company did treat me fairly because they told me before, they gave me a chance to improve. Uh, they first, they were quite uh, clear in their evidence, and then they are trying to help me with the outplacement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and my, I don't know. My experience is when you've gone through this process and you've said to someone, you know, your performance isn't meeting, and here's what I mean by that. And we've done that in a very clean, very consistent, very data-driven, behavioral, actionable way. There's been some help to try to move it forward. Most people at that point are kind of ready to go anyway because they know they can't do a good job here and they just want help getting to a place where they can do a good job. Now, not everybody by any stretch of the imagination, but I've certainly seen that more times than not if it's handled fairly and equitably. All right, I'm going to shift the tables because I promise we talk about a lot of different things and I want to talk about power. I mean, you were talking about power earlier in the boardroom And in particular, you've written some things about power and corruption. So does power always corrupt? Do they always go together? Yeah, so I'm going to now link what what you've asked me with our last conversation, which is about the firing. Now, one of the things that firing did for me, you know, is interesting. Now that it's been two years and a half since I've been fired, and I was having a conversation last night with the dean of a business school at dinner, and he asked me, what is the big thing that's happened to you because of this firing? I said, two things have happened to me. One is that I pursued some unfulfilled desires that I always have but never had time to in my career. Number two, and that is the point I want to make and which will lead us to this power question, is that it's made me a better person. 
And the reason it's made me a better person is because for the first time in my life, after such a successful career, which you recounted you know, in great detail at the start of this conversation, after such a successful career, being fired lets you step back and say, you know, nothing is really that important. You know, life goes on. And so now I take the time to do things, small things for other people, smile at children, take my time, have a coffee. You see, so that's the thing. So even with power, what happens with power is that when people get power, the way to get power is to be very good at being able to read other people. That's how you climb the ladder. You become very good at reading the room. You become very good at understanding other people's emotions. And that's how you climb the ladder and get to the top. Once you get to the top, you don't need to read other people's emotions anymore. You don't need to climb to the top. You don't need to figure out what other people are thinking anymore. So what happens is we have seen, and there's a lot of research which supports this, that as people become more powerful, they lose empathy for others. So this is the biggest thing that happens. When you become, you become less able to read the room, you become less able to read other people's emotions, you care less about other people, and you care more about your goals. So that's what happens when you, and the more powerful you become, the more isolated you become because of this. Now, how do you stop this kind of hubris? How do you stop this kind? So there are a couple of ways. One way is, of course, if you hire people who've been fired before, if they've seen the transient nature of power, because people who have seen the transient nature of power tend to have retained some of that empathy. Second thing is, if you haven't, you know, because of course nobody would advise you to get fired as a way to become powerful and be a better leader. So I would not advise that, but that is good if people have had that loss of power for some time because it makes them better leaders in the future. But the second way you do it is you have trusted advisors. People, do you have two or three people around you who are able to tell you the emperor has no clothes? And great leaders need to surround themselves with people like that. The problem that happens is that the, as leaders become more and more uh, you know, entrenched in their positions, whether it's political domain, whether it's the business domain, whether it's the non-profit domain, they become more and more uh, isolated. They have less people around them because especially, remember, the reason they've been leaders for 10 years is because they've been performing for 10 years. So there's a halo around them, they have charisma generally, and they've been great performers. So people don't dare to ask them questions and tell them they're wrong, because they always think, you know, between him or her and me, it must be I'm wrong. Right. Given this person's track record. But the thing is, just because that person has a great track record doesn't mean at any given time they're not wrong. Yeah. So yeah. you need to have these two or three people around you who will tell. That's why in the old days, the kings used to have the court jester. The court yeah. jester was role was to tell King something that nobody would dare to tell, but in a joking way, which would be, you know, accepted. Yeah. Great. It's an interesting, um, I like the way you phrase that, is that to get to the top, you have to be able to read other people, to tell their emotions and read the room and understand how to influence them, where they're coming in from and what their point of view is. But once you're at the top, your need to read the room diminishes. And for many people, they quit doing it, just flat out quit doing it. And you, you do, then still, you do get even more isolated and get more self-focused and centered on your own goals, exactly as you said. And I love your advice. 
hire people who've been fired because they'll understand the transient nature of power. That's a great statement. And every CEO I've ever talked to that I admire has always had that trusted advisor around them that somebody somewhere along the way would dare to tell them the truth. But even for the best, it's hard to do because no one wants to tell the CEO you were wrong, even if they are been open no, to fact, it. I used to all this. Yeah. No, I always used to tell Cyrus, can you not say anything in a meeting until the end? He would say, why do you say that? I said, because once you say something, we might as well go home because the meeting is over. Because after <laughs> that, everybody's just agreeing with you, you know. So, I mean, if you keep your advice at the end, listen to what everybody has said. And then at the end, you can, you know, interject and give your opinion. Because not only do people want to agree with what the leader has said, you'll often see in rooms this weird dynamic where people are trying to guess what the boss thinks and says before the boss to prove how smart they are. Yeah. Yeah, I see that all the time. You're right. Um, Down to what does it mean that he's wearing tassel loafers and a striped tie today as opposed to yesterday when he was not wearing either of those? Yeah, and, and you see how people start mimicking the boss, right? In terms of their behavior, in terms of their food habits, in terms of their clothes, yeah. In terms of the hobbies. Yeah. It is an interesting phenomena, but it is absolutely totally what people do. All right, Nirali, we're going to take a break. Um, the book that I'm really highlighting and emphasizing is called Thinking Smart, How to Master Work, Life, and Everything in Between. And I'll give you a heads up. I think there are 52 questions posed in this book and Nirali's views on those different things. There's some topics in there on hiring and firing. There's some topics in there on managing and power and corruption. And there's some topics about cross-cultural teams, which is what we'll talk about when we come back from the break. We'll be right back. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. If you are interested in the business of rental equipment, be sure to check out Rental Equip Talk Radio with host Donald Charbonnet. We talk to some of the top names in the rental industry, as well as cover topics that include safety, training, fleet management, legal issues, and more. We'll also cover the history and future of the rental equipment industry. Rental Equip Talk Radio can be heard live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Klass. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, 
philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Nirmalia Kumar, who is the Lee Kong Cheng Professor of Marketing at Singapore Management University, Distinguished Fellow at NCIAD. He's been at all the famous business schools, Columbia, Harvard, IMD, London Business School. And for three years, he was head of strategy for the Tata Group, which is a $100 billion conglomerate. We've been talking about Nirmalia's book, Thinking Smart, How to Master Work, Life, and Everything in Between. And that last segment was really largely talking about being fired, surviving it, and firing somebody as well as dealing with power and trying to understand the power in the boardroom and the power and corruption that happens as people rise in the organization. Now, the one thing, Naralia, that I didn't ask you that one is related How do you disagree with your boss? So I disagree, not necessarily the CEO, just my boss in general. I think the boss is wrong. How do I disagree with him without causing chaos? Yeah, so this is very important, Wanda, because, you know, in my role, I was the right-hand person of the chairman. But even if you're not the right-hand person of the chairman, you have a boss as most of us do, and at times we, we see that they're making the wrong decision or there's something we disagree with. And disagreeing with the boss, I found is an art. You know, it is really an art. You really learn this, and you have to do this selectively. So there's a couple of rules that I use in disagreeing with the boss. The first is you cannot disagree with your boss if the boss is not convinced that you respect them. So the first thing, before you even start disagreeing with your boss, is make sure that the boss knows that you do respect them. So it was never a question that I questioned the authority of the chairman. The chairman knew, I knew he was supposed to be chairman and I was not the chairman and I never wanted to be the chairman. It's his job. So, you know, because that gives the zone of comfort to the boss to hear your disagreements. If they think you don't respect them, they won't even hear that you disagree. So that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is, Choose when to disagree, because everything that you disagree with the boss is not worth fighting for from the organization's perspective. Secondly, there are some times when you want to disagree with the boss because you think the boss is wrong, but if the boss has already taken a public stand on an issue, then it is never good to disagree with the boss in front of others. Then you may take them aside and say, listen, I know you're taking this public stand. I think you're wrong about it. This is where I think you're wrong. So now that you're taking a public stand, you need to think about, you know, how would we make sure that either what you want happens or if I'm right and there is a problem with it, we see early signs of it and then find a way to manage it publicly. You see, because many bosses I find, they don't mind disagreement but they mind disagreement in public. 
And in fact, some of them who mind disagreement in public actually love a debate in private one-on-one. So you have to understand your boss. Do they allow disagreement in public or do they want any disagreement to be done one-on-one away from the public eye? So that's another thing. The third thing is, how do you disagree with people without undermining their authority? So how do you disagree with the boss without undermining their authority? And I always told the chairman that, listen, after I disagree with you, because he allowed me to disagree publicly, you are the person who has the right to make the decision because you are the chairman. Once you make the decision, even if it's against what I said, I will back it 110% and make sure it happens to the best of my ability. Okay. And the last thing I will say is, about disagreeing with the bosses. Please disagree without being disagreeable. It may, you know, make an argument, but don't have an argument. You know, because the moment it is perceived to be interpersonal, you lose the argument, right? So it's very important that how do you disagree without being disagreeable? And how do you disagree without making it seem like you have a personal agenda? And I think that is very important because bosses tend, because I told you, they have this ability to read other people they are very quick to figure out when this person has a personal agenda, when they are disagreeable, when they are undermining their authority. So if you're doing all those things when you're trying to disagree with the boss, expect to fail. Okay. I love that one. So just to repeat this, because I'm gonna, I think these four are really, really important. One is if you, your boss doesn't believe that you respect them and his or her authority, then you can't disagree. So that's number one. Number two, choose when. If you've already made a public stand, you're going to have to um, find a way, maybe not to say it or to take the person aside and say, I think you're wrong, but if I'm right, then let's make sure we have some early signs and we can correct. All right. And then three is um, if I disagree, make sure the boss knows that they have the right to decide. And if they have don't back your point of view, you have said, I will 100% back what the boss is wanting to do. And then the fourth one is to do it in a way that isn't disagreeable. So not making it a personal agenda item. Couldn't, couldn't ask for better advice on that one. All right, let's turn the tables. Let's talk about cross-cultural teams. You certainly worked in lots of places, Lots of different groups. You know, the Tata group has this massive empire that's, you know, around the world. Lots of people say that they know how to manage the teams. And my observation is we have no clue how to get the best out of a cross-cultural team, especially when it's virtual. So what's the secret? So the first thing, you know, Vonda, is that cross-cultural teams are, were not around maybe 30 years ago. It's a new phenomenon because as companies have become more global, business has become more global, we are increasingly seeing cross-cultural teams. And the reason we need cross-cultural teams is very important before we go into how do you manage them. One reason you need a cross-cultural team is because it gives you greater insight into the various markets that you're in. If everybody on my top management team is from the same country and I'm managing business across 30 countries, you know, I won't know what's happening in those other countries because I don't have the people who are there on a daily basis in touch with those countries. So that's why I need a cross-cultural team. The second thing, having a cross-cultural team is when I have employees across the world, if the top management team is cross-cultural, then what happens is that the people at the bottom realize we can also rise to the top because you don't have to be German or Indian or American to get to the top. Yeah. So it's very important. That is the reason why you're seeing so many cross-cultural teams. Now, the problem with cross-cultural teams is that they come to the team with different assumptions. 
And this is the big challenge. You know, people come to the team with different assumptions. And the way I sometimes try to make this, you know, uh, come alive in a classroom is I used to tell people that, you know, suppose your wife, you and your kid, assuming you're the man, or your spouse, you and your, and your, your spouse, your kid, and you are on a boat, and the boat is sinking, and you're the only one who knows how to say, how to, uh, how to, you know, uh, swim. And, and sorry, assume, uh, we'll have to do this again, gentlemen. So assume that you're on a boat with your wife, your mother, and your kid. And only you know how to save, and you can save only one person. Who would you save? And when I ask this question in the classroom, and I have people from all over the world in my classroom, like at IMD or at London Business School, it was very interesting. The participants from Middle East or China would usually say, I'm going to save my mother. And I would say, why do you say that? And they would say that is because I can always have another child and a spouse, but I can never have another mother. Then the people from America would say, I'll save my spouse. And I would say, why do you say that? And they would say, you know, my spouse is my life partner, so, you know, my mother has already had a full life and I can have more children. And the participants from Indian, India and some European countries would often say, I'll save the child. And I would say, why would you say that? They would say, if you ask my mother and my wife, she would say the same thing, save the child. So, and that was my way of saying that when you have a cross-cultural team, people come to the team with different assumptions, and you have to know how to manage these assumptions. And the biggest lesson I tell people for managing a cross-cultural team is see these differences as a source of curiosity, not contempt. You know, if okay. you come to the attitude, their attitude that the differences between different cultures is really a wonderful, curious phenomena which I need to learn about and I need to understand why this is so, rather than this person has different assumptions and I treat them with contempt. Okay. So that okay. would be my biggest learning. Of course, there are, you know, so and expect your assumptions to be questioned by other people. <laughs> I'll give you a little example. I was, I was uh, teaching a course in Sweden to sales managers. And I was talking about incentive systems. And the sales managers told me, we won't have incentive systems. And I said, what do you mean? You don't have incentive systems that if you sell more, you make more money, you get a commission? They said, no. And I said, how can you say that? And then they told me, you are telling us that if you don't give us a commission, we won't work as hard. And I was slowed. Because coming from an American-Indian perspective, where incentives is why people go into sales, I thought this was fascinating. But they said, no, whether you give me an incentive or not an incentive, I'll work just as hard, so I don't understand why I need an incentive. Mm-hmm. And this was an assumption that I had carried deeply in all my teachings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I find all of us as leaders and managers have assumptions like yours about the need for an incentive system or about what motivates other people or what's the best way to motivate people. And a lot of it is based on our own experience or what we believe motivates or incense us. And calling that up to just recognize what is my assumption in the first place and then being open to hearing that assumption from challenge from other people for other for valid legitimate reasons is kind of um, what we need to be doing here. But here's the problem. That takes time, Himalaya. Yes. Yes. So very important point you have made. Very important point, Wanda. In cross-cultural teams, you'll never be as efficient as monocultural teams, but they will be more creative. So let me give you an example. I was at a meeting which took place after an acquisition. 
And this was a Dutch and an Italian company getting together. So the first meeting is taking place between the top managers and in the room. Now, the Italian managers tend to be on their mobile phone during the meeting all the time. And the Dutch managers thought this was incredibly rude. But the Dutch managers were the hosts. They had organized the lunch. For the Dutch, if you've ever been to Netherlands for a meeting, right. lunch is generally sandwiches and a glass of milk. Yeah, right. The Italians looked at this and they were aghast. They said, hey, ask, is somebody expecting us to eat this or has it been put out for the dog and the cat? Yeah. You know? So then, after half a day of frustration, we agreed in the second half of the meeting that nobody will use their phone during the, uh, during the meeting, but we will have 15 minutes break after every hour and a half to give people time to be on the phone. Second thing we agreed on was that the Dutch will not be in charge anymore of organizing lunches. <laughs> it will be the Italians will be organizing the lunches. Now, while this is a suspicious example, though real, it tells you very, something very important. You need to spend some time norming which, I, which means you need to spend some time developing the norms by which we will work together, which will supersede our cultural norms that we come from. So most great companies that are multinational, that have been multinational for decades, what they have done is they have, org- they have developed organizational norms that supersede any cultural norms. Yes, the organizational norms will have a large hint of the home culture that that company comes from, originated from. But in the end, they managed to develop norms that are universal for that company, which at some level are above the cultural norms of any country. But of course, that takes time and it's inefficient. So as I always say, in a team, you know, you go through four stages, forming the team, storming, which is when they start having battles with each other, then norming, deciding how we are going to work together before you do performing. And that norming part and storming part will be longer in cross-cultural teams than in monocultural teams. But at the end of that, the reason you have cross-cultural teams is because your assumptions are challenged, you get greater insight into your markets, and you come up with more creative solutions. Great, great. Can you give me an example of a company that has developed a norm, a company norm that supersedes the cultural norms of any individual company? Do you have an example in mind? Yeah. Yeah, so many. There are many companies like that. So, for example, Unilever, mm-hmm. uh, even McKinsey, uh, Procter & Gamble. These are all okay. companies that have developed unique norms. You know immediately whether you fit in or you don't fit in. Nestle. You know, these companies were being global for a long time now, 50 years plus in all of these cases. They have figured out Coca-Cola. They have figured out that, you know, we are dealing with people from 100 nationalities in our company. We have to develop some organizational culture, which is very strong, which is implicit as well as explicit. And through training and socialization and onboarding, we get people to understand our culture. Okay. Which is our organizational culture, which is beyond any individual country's culture. But of course, PNG is still very American, and Nestle is still very Swiss, uh, you know, and Unilever is still very Dutch-British. So the country norms are still very prevalent, but they also have developed some unique, specific norms that allow the different cultures in those country companies to work together. Okay. Okay. And can you give an example about a specific norm for any one of those companies, Unilever, PNG, Nestle, any one of them? 
So, you know, so PNG has that famous thing that all, uh, you know, memos should be only so many words and be written in a particular manner, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the okay. norm. Right? So everybody knows that's the PNG way of writing memos. You're built into it when you start joining, when you join the company, and then you realize, yeah, that's the way we do things. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. You know, so it's just the, the basics. It would be, sorry. Go yeah, it's just, it's just the basics then of how we're going to work together in effect that we create yeah, some strong norms. Know, communication, okay. Yeah, and communication by different cultures is completely different. You know, some people will use 10 words to say the same thing. Other people will use mm-hmm. one word. So, and the way they communicate is very different. So PNG with this memo, what they've done is they figured out a way to have a universal system. Okay, great. That's a good example. Okay, you're sitting in Asia, and there's a lot of commentary going on about how important the Asian market is going to be. What's your, and especially in the emerging markets like in China in particular, what's your view about how these markets are changing the world? So, you know, this is very important because clearly there is a transition in the global economy. And this transition means that we are entering the Asian uh, century. If you have, we have already entered the Asian century. China now on a purchasing power parity basis is the largest economy you know, in the world in many ways. So what we are saying now is that a couple of things. First is we can't call them emerging markets anymore. If China is already on track to be the largest economy in the world, it's not an emerging market anymore. It's emerged. And India is now number three, between three and six, depending on how you adjust for purchasing parity in the world in terms of size of market, GDP. So you can't call them emerging markets. That's the first thing we need to understand. The second thing we need to understand is people always talk about the Asian market. Anybody who lives in Asia will never talk about the Asian market because there's no such thing as an Asian market. China and India have very little in common at some level except being in the continent of Asia. And those companies that have not seen this have actually suffered. So let me give you a little example. Zara, which is the clothing store, very successful company, a company I admire very much and have visited several times and have written several cases on. Zara entered India and China around the same time. 2006, 2007, they entered both the countries. And they entered India and China saying, these are our two next biggest markets. Well, now it's been about... 2019, and you suddenly see that in China, Zara, for Zara, China is the second largest market after Spain. But India has only 20 stores even now. Completely different trajectory. Same thing Starbucks. For Starbucks, China is now called the second home market. But in India, they have, I think, about 100, 125 stores. That's all. So the two markets cannot be taken as equivalent. That's the first thing. China is in a different league when it comes to the size of the market and the attractiveness of the market. But one needs to get even more nuanced. If you look at markets which are in the technology sector, and if you are a global multinational company coming from the West, like Uber or Google or Facebook, then you realize very quickly that India is a great market. China is not for the moment. Why? Because China does not allow Google, Facebook, and Uber to operate, whereas India does. So for these countries, for these companies, India is a much more attractive market than China. On the other hand, if you're into luxury products like Jaguar or any luxury brand or even Zara, 
Then China is a tremendous market. India is still a very small market because the luxury market in India is very underdeveloped. On the other hand, if you're selling ordinary, everyday life items like the consumer packaged goods companies like Nestle or Unilever or Racket Ben Keezer or Procter & Gamble, then both India and China are tremendous markets. Both of them are must-win the battles. So, you know, okay. the thing to remember for managers is that there is no such thing as Asian market. It's not right to call them anymore as emerging markets. It's better to call them growth markets. Okay. Great. Great. And as you rightly say, it's important to pay attention to where this market is and is it ripe for our services or products at this moment in time or when will it be or how can we move it to there? Okay. And the, thing, and the thing is that these are not only markets, but they are changing corporations because the browning of the PMT, what I call the browning of the top management team, is a reality. Mm-hmm. If these markets, India and China, are going to be so big, then even in multinational companies that are headquartered out of Western Europe and America, we are going to have to incorporate people from China and India in the top management teams. And that's why you're seeing so many people from emerging markets now starting to ascend to roles which are very senior and all mm-hmm. even CEO investing companies. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Any advice on identifying, developing, growing that talent so that we do have candidates ready to be on the management team? Yeah, so this is a very good, good very good question because, of course, the question becomes you are sitting in your headquarters in Berlin or in Munich, or in New York, or in London, and Paris. And how do you make sure that the people that you are hiring in China, India, Vietnam, Indonesia, Nigeria, and Chile feel that they are are part of the company? And how do you develop that talent so that in the future those people move up, not only in their own country, but move across? And the company that does that very well is Nestle. And Nestle has a rule that before you become a senior manager at Nestle, you have to have spent two years outside your own country, in working in some other country in our company. And the second thing you have to do is you have to have spent two years working at the headquarters. This means that you have had a chance not only to know your own country, which you grew up in, but learn another market and see the challenges of another market and understand the cultural differences that come from another market. And finally, by spending the two years at the headquarters, you understand the corporate perspective. So we will, it means that we will have to rotate people much more often. We will have to send them out to other markets to understand what cultural differences are, because you don't understand cultural differences by meeting people once or by visiting countries. You understand cultural differences by living in the country. And secondly, by going to the headquarters and working in the headquarters and wearing the hat of the headquarters person and telling countries what to do, you understand both positions. You understand what it's like to be in the country getting the orders from the headquarters and what it's like in the headquarters giving orders to the country. Only there, when you have fulfilled both these things do you, can you become a top manager at Nestle. And I would suggest that that is as good a way as you can have in developing global talent. Great. Yeah. Those day, we, lots of companies used to do this, and they used to have a lovely development program that would rotate people through those kind of um, positions in various countries and then back to headquarters and back out again and all sorts of things. But so many companies have stripped that out in a cost-saving initiative. They still say we want people who have global perspective, but they're not doing the work to develop that early enough. 
my experience with people with young talent in various countries around the world is that they join a large multinational company for the purposes of having that kind of experience moving around the world. And then they get disappointed because they're not getting access to it. So there's two aspects to this question. The first aspect is, you're right, some companies may not be doing this, and so then people join a global company and are then disappointed that they didn't get this opportunity to move around. So that's clearly one part of it, and I would discourage companies from, you know, going down this path. The second thing is we also have to realize that there are some employees who say, I don't want to do it. My family Mm -hmm. situation, my spouse and my kids do not allow me to engage in this kind of movement. And, you know, at that stage, we have to then advise that employee that this means you're tapping your career in this company at some okay. point. Or it means that you will only have a country role. You will never have a global role. Mm-hmm. You see, so that's what you're tapping your company. Or maybe some other company is better off for you. So I think yeah. you have to realize that there's a, you know, because one cannot forget that while going abroad is exciting, there's a human cost involved, especially for the family. Right. And some people are not willing to pay that cost for their career. And I, can, and I always tell people, I understand that. And I can mm-hmm. empathize with you, but I can't change the outcomes because of that. Right. You know, because to be one of the top 200 people in a global company, you have to have cross-country experience. And if you decide you don't want to do that, then maybe this is not the right company for you. You should work for a company which is only within, majorly within one country, and then that can give you the kind of career that you want. Okay. Fabulous. All right. Nirmalia, I think we're almost out of time here. So you've got 30 seconds to give one piece of advice on absolutely any topic we haven't talked about, what's that going to be? So I'm just going to say, after having been fired, what I learned was we take our jobs too seriously. We take our careers too seriously. We need to make sure that we always maintain, even though companies push us in that direction, we always maintain a healthy work-life balance. Okay. That's a topic for a whole other session on how to do that one. But you're right. If we don't take care of it for ourselves, the company certainly isn't going to do it. Fair enough. All right, Nomalia, fascinating interview and a wonderful series of topics. The book, again, that I'm highly recommending is called Thinking Smart, How to Master Work, Life, and Everything in Between. Um, It's been a pleasure having you on the show. And please join us next week for another episode on how to get out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.